Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Arnold Scherabon, co-founder and CEO of Urio. In hindsight, we could have probably do more research and tried to find out whether this customer base would be big enough. But back and then we kind of took a little of risk and gut feeling and thought, okay, let's just start this. We think the opportunity in a market as a whole is just very big because not much products are already here. So, and that's mm-hmm. still what we're experiencing. So it's, we don't have to pitch against another product. This is Arnold. He's a legal practitioner by heart. However, the first nine years of his career, Arnold operated in recruitment and training. During that time, he often met with Patrick Hoffman for a glass of beer. And that's where they ended up discussing how lawyers and tax advisors are often not able to use commonly accepted tools and how that's holding them back. And these discussions fueled the big idea behind Urio, which they co-founded together in July 2017. Urio is on a mission to help lawyers and tax advisors grow profitably while working and communicating stress-free and confidently with their clients. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Arnold to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the way lawyers and tax professionals have to deliver their best work. Arnold shares how he took his business from idea to repeatable traction. He digs into the big lessons learned on their journey towards product market fit, how this influenced the way they segment the market, and why he believes he should have started selling much earlier. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, what to do differently to find a problem spot that's not been solved before. Secondly, how to go about creating traction within a market segment that's not willing to move. Thirdly, why we often think we've niched down enough, but are still miles off. And fourthly, the value of starting to sell early and how to avoid starting selling too late. Well, hi, Arnold. Thank you for making the time available uh, today to be on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, that was an easy one. And we met on Lunch Club a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And that's where you told me about your company, Yurio. 
And I got intrigued in, in a number of ways. And I thought, okay, you know, you need to be on the podcast to explain the story and let the world know what's going on in legal tech. But before we start and talk about your company, if you would describe yourself as an entrepreneur, what would be the two or three words that you would use or characteristics? Oh, wow. I guess um, curious and easy, excitable. So easy to be excited. <laughs> All right. That can be a very dangerous one. It can be, yeah. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> Positive traits as well, yeah. Yeah, I would say it has more positive than negative, as long as you know where to say stop and exactly. say where to say no. That's yeah, a okay. topic for self-management. <laughs> it is, it is, yeah. Well, I mean, you make me a little bit curious about what did you see or what did you saw in the market that was screaming, what problem that you experienced that was screaming for a solution? So basically what we do with Uria is we enhance the collaboration between lawyers, mainly lawyers and tax consultants and their clients. And so yeah. what I personally and together with Patrick, who's my co-founder, what we kind of stumbled upon is that the communication process can be very tiresome with lawyers if you have yep. to deal with them. Not because they are bad lawyers and they do a bad job in their respective field, but because they're just usually a few steps behind, especially when it comes to digitalization and stuff like that. So it has to do with naturally also with the kind of work they do. So yeah. it's also like in the setting that they work so that I don't think it's very surprising that it's not the most innovative industry. Nevertheless, also they have to innovate at some point. And so yeah. what we experienced was that the whole collaboration communication process was very tiresome. So everything was done via phone calls and via email. And we actually asked, okay, can we do this in a more productive way, please? And the answer was simply no. And then we said, why? And then they were like, well, we don't know. We've never thought about this. And I was like, we can't be the first client's who asks for something like that, and then they said, well, yeah, we get asked, but we usually tell our clients that there's no solution. And then we thought, hmm, <laughs> maybe we should build one. <laughs> so you were in connection with a lawyer or with a tax advisor. Mm -hmm. You experienced the friction. It takes longer than you hope for. What do you believe is a consequence? Well, I can't this continue? Because I mean, if they believe it can continue, but typically it's looking at like how your customers experience it, of course. Because I think from the lawyer perspective or tax consultant, they are almost billing by the minute. Mm -hmm. For them, it's sort of a good thing. There's no incentive. Is that correct? To some extent, well, the field of law is or how lawyers practice law in general differentiates. It's quite different from lawyer to lawyer, actually. It really depends on in what type of law he is specialized in and how he does his daily business. And so the need for, I would say, a more efficient collaboration, to sum it up, is probably not the biggest if you think like a law firm based outside the city who basically cover everything from a divorce to a car accident. It would benefit them, but also there maybe the client need is not there yet. Basically, they used to, they go personally to the lawyer, they discuss everything, he writes it down, maybe he sends an email or even a letter to the respecting party. And so things like still could work like that. And also like the money part that you mentioned, most of that is regulated by law anyway, how much right. you can charge for it. That being said, 
That means also in procedural court cases, he already knows how much money he can get out of it. So yeah. if he really thinks about it, so if it's a lawyer who is like very keen on numbers and how his law office works, he actually realizes that it's also a good thing for him exactly. to be more efficient in that case, because that actually means he makes the same amount of money, even if it's billed by the hour, because he basically sends out the same bill because it's the usual exactly. bill that you would send out for such type of work. And yeah, the court well, would recognize it as a usual bill and would accept. Yeah, margin goes up. Exactly. This is not the field that we're very successful in so far. Okay. Most successful we are, of course, in business law. And there, of course, still the Wilbur Hour model exists. And although some scientists and other more progressive lawyers have many times proclaimed the end of billable hour billing and so on, and it's still here, but the reality on the other hand is also that most lawyers uh, have a cap in the meantime in the business. So basically what they do is they make an estimate and say, okay, I'm going to spend that and that hours on it in total with my whole team. And that's going to be what I charge you. And then the company says, okay, and that's also the cap. So if nothing else arises, then I won't pay you anymore. And uh -huh. that basically means that they also kind of have the possibility to work more efficiently. Yep. And since the companies try to lower their legal spend, especially their outside counsel legal spend, it becomes more and more interesting for legal companies, for legal offices, law offices to be more efficient and to offer that service to the clients. And then comes the second part in, it's a very competitive field. It's not that there is just one lawyer who can solve your problems and companies know that and they usually get more and more offers. And so it's also a way of differentiating yourself as a law office to say, okay, listen, if you work with me, we have this digital process and digital ways of communicating and you don't have to do 80 emails with us if you work with us. And then the company says, oh, that sounds interesting. So there are a lot of aspects, but yeah. the main pressure actually comes from the client. Let me make a small interruption here. Arnold just made an excellent remark about what drives their success. They didn't look at their customers for inspiration, but at their customers' customers. You have to know that on the lawyer and tax professional side, the incentive to innovate often isn't there. So you could call them laggards. And so to gain traction, Yurio dug into what clients of these agencies really want and how that could change the way the industry works. Their value proposition, therefore, became one around creating competitive advantage, rather than one of cost savings and increased efficiency. And that made all the difference. It's a trade remarkable software company's master. They master the art of curiosity. Then they bring things down to the essence, and then create new value possibilities, which drives their momentum. And you can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the next 10 minutes. Back to the interview. That's also what I see. And when I hear you talk about that, it's really looking at what's going to benefit the client most and use that and orchestrate how your business can live up to that. Because I definitely see that's a competitive advantage. Who doesn't want to have a lawyer that's going to say it's going to go faster? going to have the same result or a better result and you pay less for that and even if you pay more it's still also typically in the business situations that you were talking about sometimes time is money there is an acquisition that needs to be done for example where there's more bidders and you just want to get through it fast 
and every minute or hour you can squeeze out of the process, that's a gain. Really, okay, okay, exactly. good. So what do you believe is the opportunity if we get this right? If the world starts to embrace your platform, the Urio platform, what are we going to see? Well, as a broad picture, that's an interesting question. As a broad picture, I think you're going to see a more efficient communication process, which would most probably, for most of the people, don't seem that new in total because they used to work like that in almost every other industry. So yeah, definitely a modernization uh, game there and a lot of opportunities to change the game, how business is done in that industry. Exactly. I mean, the reason behind it, maybe to understand why it's not that like every lawyer is like hates innovation and doesn't like digital products and is stubborn and doesn't want to innovate. That's actually not true. There are a lot of lawyers who actually do that or who want to do that. The problem is actually that if you're not very deep into the market needs, if you don't understand also very well exactly the legal aspects of the work of a lawyer and what kind of, you know, when it comes to data security and other legal requirements that he actually has to fulfill in order to use a product, no matter how useful it might be there, I would say like 98 of the software service products out there. This is just, I haven't done any research on this, but just out of my gut feeling, he wouldn't be able to use, I mean, he would actually breach law if we would use them. So he doesn't because lawyers tend to be usually very mindful about those things. Yeah, exactly. And this is the main reason why this, in comparison to other markets, maybe smaller market, isn't that digitalized. In my opinion, that is the main reason. Yeah, it's interesting or actually sad that an industry is actually held back by all the regulations and all the fear that's actually going on to make a mistake. And of course, specifically in those cases where trust is really, really an issue, Trust is a table stake in that game. You know, you go to a lawyer or to a tax advisor or to a notary because you believe that exactly that particular thing, you don't have to worry about that. Holding them back at the same time. Winding the clock forward or maybe backwards from here, 2017, you start. There's this enormous opportunity in the market to kind of modernize, to help the industry as a whole yeah, embrace a new way of working. So where do you start, you know? That is about the modernization itself and the value that you're going to create. And on the other end, there's all these incredible requirements for data protection, for security, for kind of all the requirements that they have in terms of how they work and how they're being authored, I think, also to work, right? Mm -hmm. Where do you start? What was the first decision you took to get going? Before we actually founded the company, I mean, legally, the legal registration of the limited company and so on. We, of course, did a little bit of our homework and we started to talk to a lot of lawyers and back then mostly lawyers and not so much uh, tax consultants and tried to really prove whether this was just our pain that we felt and whether they saw that as well, or at least whether they would think, okay, well, this is something that I could stand out with to my customers, or I would like to work in that way as well because of efficiency and so on. And then we kind of thought, okay, and we tried many ideas actually working around that and tried to test them with them and said, okay, if this product, which basically builds some mock-ups and said, okay, you can do this and this and try to visualize it a little bit so that it was easier for them to understand what we meant and then ask them, okay, would you buy that tomorrow? Basically, not testing a pricing strategy in detail, but say, okay, would you spend any amount of money on such a product? 
I think in my field, the difficult question was then also we had to do our homework as well and said, okay, not only the visual part, but the thing that I just mentioned before, tell them, okay, imagine it works like that. And we promise you that we would fulfill all legal requirements for you to actually use it. Yeah. So that was kind of a given because when we started the first question, it was always like, well, we wouldn't be able to use that. It sounds great, but we wouldn't be able to use that. Yeah. So it was kind of a good thing for me to have like Patrick on my side, my co-founder. I think we, were, we still are and were back then as well, a good team in that sense, because I have a legal background. So I'm not a lawyer, but with my legal studies and so on, I still know how they work, how they basically yeah. think, and I can read legal texts and I can you know, find out, okay, what kind of legal requirements do we need to solve? And then Patrick, who is the software developer, very senior software developer, previous CTO to that company, he was able to very quickly say to me, okay, but we could solve that on a technical point if we do this and that. And so that we could really go to the client or to future customers and tell them, okay, imagine this is what the product would do. This would be the benefit to you the value to you. And in the backbone, imagine, I mean, the product isn't ready yet, but just imagine that all the legal requirements are done as well. That was our approach. And uh, what did you learn? We really tried to find out whether we really hit a spot with something that isn't solved so far by the market, in our opinion, or not completely, where there's like a blind spot for a product, which still would solve a pain and which isn't solved by any other mass products, most probably because of the just mentioned, again, <laughs> legal reasons. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's true. Well, what you typically normally see is that everybody's trying to kind of focus on the table stakes. You're like, okay, we do what you do today. This is how it's going to be done. With that approach, you're typically going to aim to be a little bit better. The question at the end is where the customers will, will give up what they have today in order to make that bridge to a new product with all the risk associated to it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what did you learn in that process of saying, well, first of all, what you use is that technique that I uh, really appreciate from the book, The Beautiful Constraint, this propelling question about like an aspirational value to be created, kind of connected to a constraint, in this case, that it needs to kind of fulfill all the legal requirements, and then using the technique of we can if rather than we can't because to get a conversation going. So that's thumbs up for that. At what point did you see, wait a minute, now we're hitting the right nerve. We're striking something that resonates where there is demand. Can you give an example of that or what, what is the experience? I don't know if that is the experience for everyone or maybe some experience, something like you show people a mock-up and everybody says, wow, that's the best thing I've seen in my whole life. When can I buy it? Maybe sometimes those products happen. I don't know. <laughs> but it wasn't our experience, to be honest. Not all of them were immediately, you know, excited and said, okay, I immediately see the value and that's great. And please build it tomorrow and stuff like that. 
But some of them were very excited and really saw the benefit and said, okay, this is great. Please build it. I would buy it. I see the value for me. I see the value for my customers. Some said, well, yeah, that's a good idea. And uh, probably if there's this feature and that feature, which usually then they drift off, you know, if they see a general value, then they start to think, okay, how could this benefit me even more? And then they start to add feature requests that generally I think, or at least I interpreted it still as a general interest in the idea as a whole and as an interest in, in your product. And then, of course, we had all naysayers who said, well, I don't know. I still like working with emails and yeah, might be a data security problem email as well. But, you know, as long as my customer uses it. And so it was kind of a mix that we thought, okay, there is certainly a number of people who will buy it. Yeah, almost certainly. And who are very excited about it. And there seems to be a number of people who could be convinced to buy it and maybe start loving it once they use it. And then there will be some who will never buy it and some of them maybe buy it at the later stage, but and yeah. some will never, ever buy it. And that is fine. To be honest, maybe we didn't do it in the best way. In hindsight, we could have probably do more research and tried to find out whether this customer base would be big enough. But back and then, we kind of took a little of risk and gut feeling and thought, okay, let's just start this. We think the opportunity in a market as a whole is just very big because not much products are already here. So... And that's mm -hmm. still what we're experiencing. So it's we don't have to pitch against another product. Because it's new. Because it's something that is sort of revolutionary to use a word that I actually hate, but in that particular market. The product doesn't exist in our market niche. Yeah. At least that's of not course, in the configuration as we offer it. That's, of course, always a pain because you have to educate the market. But yeah, but I think what you exactly, typically see... That's is exactly what you just quietly mentioned there. I mean, the sales process is actually, it's not necessarily better because, as you said, we have to educate people. And then you have those people who say, ah, well, but my clients want to work via email. And then you kind of are in a pickle. And luckily, yep. we have a few good salespeople who can then actually, without telling them that they are wrong, let them see that actually their clients maybe want something different that's always a good one that's always a good one so you start building you take a little bit of a bet so to say as you say where did you start you know because there's so many things that need to be in place what did you particularly focus on to create something that would give you differentiated value rather than building something that has already been done before that's a good question i mean what we did or what we're still doing is we started to build to really define the product, to also define the product in a way that it's not overboarding and wouldn't like take, you know, 10 years to build because we want to pack every feature idea that we have or that customers present to us, bring into it and to really break it down to like pieces that can be built in a reasonable part of time. And then go back to the customer and say, okay, first we've talked again about the big vision. So here we're back again. We want to start now. This would be the first prototype with the first features uh, or the first values that you would get out of it would be you could share that data. For example, you can upload documents and then you can send them to your clients and he can receive them. How does that sound for you? And then from that on, we said, okay, and then what would be the next value and so on. And that's how we started. Well, I don't know yeah. if that is a good way. <laughs> but did you, for example, decide to build something that already leverages what they're already using today? 
or do they have to really migrate to a completely new environment? I mean, I could, for example, imagine that you would keep the email applications in place or the, the applications like Word or Google Google Docs and these type of yeah critical applications that they're using on a day-to-day basis. No, that is actually a very good point. So what we did before is really try to find or to define the product in a way that we say, okay, this service doesn't exist for lawyers. It has a value for lawyers. It's also not covered by, even in a bad way, covered in software that they already use. Because of course, I said they, we are the software as a service solution, the first one, but they of course use software. It's just not software as a service. So yeah. it's in 98% of the time, it's just software that was created in the 90s and that you still have to, you know, in the meantime, you can download it, but not so long ago, they were sent CDs and DVDs to actually exactly. run and install them. And then they have on-premise server infrastructure where you know the bigger ones are installed and so on. So they do use software, of course. And yeah. those products are very feature-heavy and they can do a lot, but they cannot do everything. So lawyers and tax consultants are very dependent on those parts of software. So we knew that it would be nearly impossible to build a product where we would have like a similar offer to something that their base software, let's call it like that, is already solving. No matter how bad they are solving it, if they're solving it, it makes the sales process and the value proposition very hard. So we actually tried to find a product so that we could tell them, okay, listen, you don't have to switch from your existing habits and from your existing product, we give you an additional value with this product and we will connect it to your base system. And if you buy it, you don't have to make either or decisions or just an end decision, basically. I like this because it takes away all the arguments, you know, keep doing what you're doing. We're just going to add something to it that's going to create sort of a one plus one equals three or more type of proposition. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean that everybody buys it, but it certainly helps in the sales process and also to really let them see the value and say, okay, so we don't want you to quit your daily routine. Of course, if you use a new product, there's some sort of change, of course. And since we are in the communication business, once they use our product, they use less email. But then again, if they don't have to switch from their base system, I don't think that many people really miss email, you know? (laughs) They wouldn't give up email totally. And that would also be, you know, a very bad idea to say, okay, I have only Uriel. I have no email. (laughs) That doesn't work. That's also not our aim of the game. The aim of the game is actually to let email bring value to the parts where it brings value and then reduce it at parts where it doesn't bring value anymore, which is usually once you start going really into depth with uh, communication with your lawyer, if he has some initial legal product for you ready then he starts to communicate it via urio and then you work back and forth until you're happy no matter what kind of legal work it is actually and all of that is much much better embedded into a system that we offer where you can work on the documents and see the versions and have a project management module and have a chat and everything is extremely secure which is as you said in combination with the lawyer that you have these trust issues because it's usually an extremely sensible and very expensive matter that you're dealing with when you're dealing with a lawyer. 
also the clients expect the lawyer to actually use a system where your data doesn't float somewhere in the Google or Amazon service space. Exactly. What has been the hardest nut to crack in this journey, technological or maybe even business-wise? On the business side, it really seems like if you say, okay, I have lawyers as a customer group, that seems like a small enough niche to say, okay, I'm just going to target lawyers and then try to sell it to them, which is not true because actually there are quite a few lawyers. (laughs) And as I said in the very beginning, they're actually doing quite a different type of work. Also, the sizes of law firms differ. We took, I think, longer to really find out, okay, within lawyers and within tax consultants and within notaries, which of those are ideal customers? Where can we be faster, successful, where we can sell faster, et cetera, et cetera. That was not so easy for us to find out, to be honest. Okay. Did you crack the nuts in the meantime? I think so. So if I look at the numbers and how sales is going up, it looks like we're doing at least a better job than we did before. And we know that this type of legal work, we already have very good examples and templates actually within our software that we can show the customer and and tell them, okay, listen, your colleague is already working with that template and has that value. And then we try to target, of course, those again and say, okay, your colleague is working with that and maybe you should work with that as well. We have a lot more knowledge. And in the beginning, it wasn't an unsolvable problem. It's very hard and sometimes also very frustrating work because you get a lot of rejection in that process. That's true. You get a lot of waste in the pipeline. A lot of like sales seems to take for ages, but you don't really see it until you start to realize, wait a minute, it's not us, it's them. Exactly. And it's also, you know, from the business side, I mean, at that time, you just burn money and it's a tricky part. Yeah. You also have on a psychological level, as I said, you have to be able to withstand all that rejection, of course, which I think is normal, but you still have to accept that. And still, as long as you acknowledge it, it, as long as you see it. With every product, not everybody's going to buy your product. That's just unrealistic. Exactly. You might feel in the beginning that, wait a minute, you know, they should. And why aren't they doing it? They just want something else. That's exactly why you got the Rogers adoption curve of adoption. You know, there's the innovators, exactly. the early adopters. The bulk is in the middle. People that won't go when you say jump. So you create your product, you go to market, you go to market in a very determined way to try to solve one particular problem at a time and then grow from there, get feedback, iterate from there and go from scale. What did you learn in the process of selling it, selling it to your first 100 customers? We learned actually a lot. I mean, we learned more on the business side. You always know more afterwards. And if you think back and then you would say, okay, I would do this differently. But the main thing that I think we are um, and we were very product focused and not for a business as a whole, we weren't sales focused at a certain amount of time, which meant that we really thought, okay, this has to be better and this has to be better before we really can sell it or we can sell more or be more successful in sales. We thought everything is connected to the product. And I think that's only partially true in hindsight. So I think we could have started selling the product earlier. I think the value was already there, but we weren't probably able to communicate well enough or to have like the skill in me or other people in the company to communicate it well enough to the customers to make more sales earlier. As soon as we started to scale up and make more sales, actually the product input 
started to shift or not to shift, but we actually started to understand more what kind of additional features we could develop within the product that would also generate more sales or more revenue within the product. And that is something that I've learned that actually sales is a very important part in, it's not that I didn't know, but I kind of like the, how you wait on it in your company. I thought, okay, this has to be like the really awesome and perfect. I mean, it's your baby, right? So you want it to be really great the first time you sell it. And it's kind of also what type of person you are, whether you think it's worth spending money on, although you know, okay, it has this bug and this feature isn't in there yet. And maybe we can sell it in this state. In hindsight, that's bullshit because I think... Usually you very early on create some value and maybe you can sell it for the price you're selling it two years later, but that is fine. So as long as you have someone who says, okay, that's cool. I want to work with that and I'll pay you X. Then once they start, I don't know why that is. And maybe it's also wrong. I don't know, but I have the feeling once people start to pay for the product, also the feedback on additional features and how they use the product starts to be different and it actually helps you to create maybe a different product once you have more sales. Very good point because that is indeed what it is because then they have skin in the game and it's for real for them. And before that, it's very easy to give opinions and to give a polite answer. But the moment you get made the bet, you've decided I'm going to work with this, yeah, and then suddenly the quality, I've heard it a lot of time, the quality of how they think about requirements is going to shift dramatically. They pay you, in our case, most of the time every month. So they pay every month and they use it. And once they use it and they pay for it, and then they say, okay, can I have this feature? And then you tell them, okay, listen, but we talked about this, this, and this also. You're paying now money. So which of those four would you deem most valuable for yourself? And then I think something in their head really leads them to think about it again and then say, okay, what benefits me or what could be more beneficial for my client? And then do I really need this just in this one case? Or is that a feature that is generally useful that is also like very hard, especially in a legal space, because they're not used to, you know, also be part of the product development space. So basically every time they have an idea, they throw it at you and want some solution. We as a company, we have to think in a broader picture because then exactly. at some point the product becomes shit. If you like just blindly integrate every feature request that would maybe work for one customer, but then it's a custom software and not software as a service for a broader audience. Very good point. So do you have any framework for that to kind of prevent you from making those rapid decisions? I've also been responsible for the product strategy at Unit 4 a couple of years ago and you were also already talking about segmentation and about how important it is to start selling to the right customers. But if you sell to customers where functionality-wise it will fit, but they will never become a fan, the risk of that as well is that those customers will drag you in a direction where everybody else is going to not like it as well either. You know? You're constantly fixing gaps rather than focusing on the things that really matter for the ones that matters most. Did you see that as well? Yeah, so I think that is the constant challenge in product development. There are many things or many directions that that kind of work can develop, especially when it comes to automatization. What kind of parts do you automate? On what side do you automate it? On the lawyer side, on the client side, on both sides? 
So I think that in the product development, I think that for me is one of the hardest things to kind of see, okay, we should build those three features because it will help us in sales. But how does that play into the general vision of the product and how can we still achieve that? And I think at some point, sometimes you have to sacrifice maybe very lucrative features where you could say, okay, if we could build that in the next month, we're pretty confident that we would be more successful in sales in X percent, but you don't do it in order to build a more complicated feature, overall feature that will drive the product even furthermore, but takes time and effort and is harder to develop. I don't know if that is a great idea and I don't know if one should do that, but that's how I think about it <laughs> so far. <laughs> no, I think you're um, on the right track there. You know, at the end, what you try to do with the vision is to create meaningful change in the market. And like you said, you know, because of that change that you're creating, you create defensible differentiation. You're standing out because of that. You get known for that. And there are many ways to achieve that, whereby if you constantly look for the short-term things that you can create to create short-term revenue at the end, like it is a generic product, like everything else, and that's working against you. So I applaud for you that you uh, constantly kind of tie it back to, okay, how does this, it might give us short-term or sales success, but how does it tie to the larger vision and give points for that as well, so that you keep a nice balance between short-term and long-term. Getting towards the top of the hour here, I wrote this book, The Remarkable Effect, and that's what I also see. I see a number of things in your company that connect to that. So being a founder of a software company, what do you believe are traits or secrets that you have to pr prioritize in your business in order to become a business that people start talking about and keep talking about? I think you really have to do your homework before you start in terms of user research and find a solution or trigger a pain where you can really feel so actually, for me, it was those moments, as I said, of course, there were many naysayers who said, well, I don't know, why should I use something like that? But then there were some people who like were genuinely excited, who were like, I didn't think about that. That would be awesome. That would help me enormously in exactly. one, two, three. And that really also, I mean, that gets you excited as a product owner, as a startup co-founder, founder, whatever. If you see that, okay, the idea that you saw a problem, you generated an idea out of that and you found someone who thought it was really exciting. And then, of course, you really have to test whether this is a genuine excitement, yeah, because it could be coerced by some factors. But if you find more and more people who are excited about it, I think that is a very good sign. I don't know if that is a secret. I don't know if everybody does it. It's what we did, actually. And it's what at some point, of course, I think also kept us going and still believing in the idea. Because as I said, you get a lot of people who say, I don't know if that's going to work. You have to see past that. And if you can't, maybe you won't build the product who could have been successful. Very good point. I think what hit the point there is do the homework on triggering a pain. You know, you can get people generally excited about something they see. The question is, does it solve a valuable pain for them that is also critical for them? So it's high on their agenda. If those two things are right, you definitely have something that is going to give you the right way to start from, to build a foundation for that. Kind of connected to that. I think the difference is like if you build digital products, I think this pain value that is, you read that basically everywhere 
there's so much truth in it and it just simply is like that. I think you can also build different products maybe in other industries where the value pain or where the pain, maybe it's a different way of pain. For example, you could just offer a product or create a product that is just more beautiful. I don't know, in fashion sure. maybe. Yeah, that works. Or in some industry, we say, okay, the value of the product is basically the same. It's just more beautiful to me subjectively yeah. or hopefully to others. And yeah, that, that's what that work. I don't yeah. think that in software as a service, that is a trade. I mean, UX is very important, but in general, I don't think that if you say, okay, look, this is exactly the same as you have. It's just more beautiful. I don't think that that is a business case. People might go at that at some point and say, let's just make it more beautiful. It's also something that we thought about, to be honest. I thought about, I said in the beginning where all the lawyers are using this base software and it's not very UX, to put it mildly, UX was not a big concern in the 90s. So you could most certainly build a product that is more easy to use from a user experience point of view. But that alone is, in my opinion, very hard to be a successful product. Exactly. Well said. So kind of last question on your entrepreneurial experiences. So based on what you like five years being the CEO of the company, what would be a do and what would be a don't that you could advise yeah, peer CEOs to take account of? Well, the biggest learning is definitely what I mentioned in believing when your product is ready to be sold and when it isn't. So basically what I think is don't think that your product can't be sold so far. So really, really, really find out if that is true because most sure. of the time, most probably you're wrong. If you have like the feeling that it could be sold, most probably it can be sold. And so that is also the do, which is like try to find the ideal point when you can start selling your product because it will help you on so many levels, not only on like the business money part, cash flow part, which still won't be you know enormous most probably but it still makes a difference on so many levels and the user feedback also in your cash flow of course in your projections in talking with your impossible investors if you want to go down that part if you want to have an investor and you have paying customers you're so far ahead of everyone else and i think that is one of the biggest learning in my five years thank you well i think these were nice words to conclude on Thank you for sharing the wisdom. Thank you for explaining the journey that you have built with Furio. And I'll keep following you on your next five years. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for your questions. I think I'll think about them as well. <laughs> and yeah, great to talk to you. It was a pleasure indeed. Thank you. And this ends my conversation with Arnold. And I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Arnold Sherabon, co-founder and CEO of Urio. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, Share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, 
please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.